You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining me on another edition of Ocean Currents, a show where we dive into the blue part of our planet, the ocean. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet. I bring this show to you from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California waters, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast, and it's a hotspot for ocean life above and below the surface. I love this time of year because typically I get out to the Cordell Bank Sanctuary with our annual field seminar trips in search of marine life. And... Just this last month, we had two successful field trips where we had the opportunity to go out for a full day on the ocean, and we got to see lots of black-footed albatrosses, sooty and pink-footed shearwaters, bullers shearwaters, storm petrels galore, Pacific white-sided dolphins, dolls porpoise, and, and many, many more organisms. The whales seem to have left the area, though. Not so many around, but uh, so it's a little quiet on the megafauna front, but nonetheless, it's always amazing to get out on the ocean and get reconnected. I also just returned from a very long and intense week attending a conference in Monterey that focused on the ocean in a high CO2 world. And all week I heard talk after talk about the latest research regarding the impact of ocean acidification on the ocean globally. So later in the show I'll give you more of an update on that. But I want to jump into today, I have a live guest in the studio. It's great pleasure to welcome Eben Schwartz from the California Coastal Commission to the KWMR studio today. Eben is the Marine Debris Program Manager for the California Coastal Commission based in San Francisco. He directs the largest cleanup event in California, the California Coastal Cleanup Day, held in September every year. And he serves on several leadership councils and panels that address this growing issue of trash in the ocean and on our beaches. So, El- Eben, welcome to KWMR. Thanks for having me. And Ocean Currents. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been a long time that I've had this show, and I, I'm kind of stunned this is the first time I'm having you. So I'm so happy to have you here. I'm glad to be out here. It's nice to be out in this beautiful town. I know, on a very hot day. <clears throat> so I'm imagining many people are at the beach, but they can catch the podcast later. <laughs> <laughs> so you are you work on a hot topic, something I'm pretty passionate about myself, with marine debris and, and trash on the beaches. And... Since you work for the California Coastal Mission, I'm hoping we can just back up a little bit and just hear a little bit of background on what the California Coastal Commission is all about when it was established and the main role that it serves in the the state of California. Sure. I'd uh, be happy to. The Coastal Commission has been around for quite a while now. Actually, the Coastal Act, which uh, created the Coastal Commission, was passed in 1972. So we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year of the Coastal Act um, of groundbreaking piece of legislation, one of the first in the nation to uh, specifically focus on coastal zone management and protection. Um, So the commission's job is to oversee the Coastal Act, make sure that it's uh, uh, being 
uh, uh, held to and um, to make sure that our coastal zone, which is the entire length of the coast of California from the border with Oregon all the way down to the border of Mexico uh, and uh, varying widths depending on where you are and how urban or rural the area is, uh, what we do is we work with local governments along that entire length of the coastline to regulate development, to ensure access to the coast, to improve access to the coast, uh, and to make sure and to protect viewscapes and agriculture and habitat, uh, and to make sure that development that does occur along our coastline uh, doesn't damage any of those sensitive resources, doesn't limit access to the coast, and that our coast remains of the character that it was back in 1972 and will hopefully continue to be for the next 40 years. 1972 is a significant year for a lot of different legislation. And uh, I've told people this before. I think my parents were having the foresight that I would be passionate about these issues. I was born in 72. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So we were probably very, very little. I mean, just being born when this was all established. What were certain activities that were happening 40 years ago that really stimulated the creation of the act? Well, there was a lot of development going on along the coastline and some very large developments and there was this uh, fear in the state of this sort of creeping urbanization of our coastline. Um, Unlike many of the coastlines along the East Coast, the California coastline has always belonged to the people of California and as more and more sections of the coast were becoming essentially walled off with development, private development, people's access to the coast was becoming limited. And because of that, this groundswell movement happened and uh, a citizen initiative, Proposition 20, known as the Save the Coast Initiative, uh, was generated and passed that created the Coastal Commission essentially to make sure that we didn't see further loss of access to our coast. Uh, And it's been incredibly effective, um, not just in very basic protections of the coast itself, but also in generating this ethic of coastal stewardship that we see now throughout the state of California. There's very, very strong support for coastal protection, for environmental issues in general in California. And because of that, the Coastal Commission has um, had an easier time than it might otherwise uh, doing its job to make sure the coast remains protected and open to all and for future generations. It's great. I really appreciate it because um, I love accessing the coast. And, you know, recently was just up on the Mendocino Fort Bragg coast. And Mm. you really got to find those little outlets to get down there. But there's signs that are produced by, I think, the Coastal Commission that say beach access or coastal access. And you know you can get down there. And it's it's a very helpful tool to figure out how to get down and see some of these amazing places. Yeah. And those are a great success story, actually, because we work in partnership with a lot of different organizations, primarily the Coastal Conservancy, which is our sister agency that um, is able to, you know, purchase easements and land along uh, along the coast, um, and local organizations, because each of those easements, each of those access ways has to be maintained by somebody. So local partners will take that on, um, and it becomes a real community effort to make sure that that coastline is maintained and accessible for everybody. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that background. It was really helpful. Um, But your focus, you really are the Marine Debris Program Coordinator for the state. It's a Mm. huge issue, thinking (laughs) about the length of the state. And it's a fairly recent issue, actually. I, I just started reading Captain Charlie Moore's book, Plastic Ocean, 
um, I got to sail with Charlie Moore many about five or six years ago and uh, became very familiar <clears throat> excuse me familiar with his work with Algalita Marine Research Foundation. <clears throat> excuse me. And he writes about his personal experience in growing up in Long Beach and never seeing debris as a kid. And it just made me think, wow, this is a lifetime that we're seeing this incredible change, relatively new phenomena about this issue of marine debris. So when about in California did we realize the, the power of this issue and, and started action on it? It's a really good point because if you look at, uh, you know, Charlie Moore's life and Charlie Moore's book as, as one example or, or just one benchmark for how we can measure this issue. Um, when Charlie was growing up, the use of plastic specifically in our society was so much less than it is today. We focused on uh, much more durable, reusable goods. We were not we didn't have the kind of packaging that we have today. We don't have the kind of single-serving society that we do today. And what happens when you create all that more packaging and you use that much more plastic is that you create many, many, many more opportunities for those items to get lost in the system and to become debris. So that's what we've seen as single-use disposable plastic packaging and plastic items have become more prevalent, we've seen a market increase in the amount of trash that's on our beaches and in our oceans. It, uh, there are countless studies about this, but plastic items just absolutely dominate the palette of beach debris that we clean up every year on Coastal Cleanup Day, it dominates what we pull out of our stormwater system. It, just across the board, what we're looking at is plastic debris for the most part, um, with some exceptions, of course. Uh, but plastic has a lot of advantages over other materials, and it's those very same advantages. It's durability, it's uh, ability to keep food fresh, all these wonderful things that we that we love the, the the material for. Those translate into items that last a lot longer in the open ocean, that last a lot longer without biodegrading ever uh, on our city streets and in our stormwater systems. So naturally, we're going to find a lot more of it if it's never going to go away. So from my understanding, the Coastal Commission, through the work done through the California Coastal Cleanup, um, they've identified that 60 to 80 percent or 85 percent of the ocean trash, ocean debris is plastic and land-based sources. Mm -hmm. So about what about the other stuff? I know earlier on when I started doing education about this effort, people would ask about at-sea dumping. And what about at-sea dumping? Is that a significant source? Well, it's certainly a source, and it's a source that, we're, that we remain very concerned about because a lot of the stuff that's <clears throat> lost at sea uh, is very, very damaging. I mean, you look at derelict fishing gear, for example. Uh, fishermen don't want to lose their gear, but stuff does get lost off fishing boats. Nets get lost, crab pots, lobster pots. All these things have a way of escaping the systems that are set up there. And those items don't stop working once they're lost from a boat. I mean, derelict fishing nets, for example, will continue to ghost fish until they snag on something or ball up into a net. And these are killing machines out in the ocean um, for potentially years doing their job. Um, so it's not, an, it's not an area of no concern. But when you look at the numbers, 60 to 80 percent, closer to 80 percent in California of the debris that's in our oceans is coming from land. It's certainly there's some amount that comes from beachgoers, but the majority comes from stormwater systems. And it could be coming from very, very far inland. 
Our rivers, our stormwater systems are incredibly effective at pushing all the debris that either gets washed down by rain or is just dumped or left or littered or whatever it might be, washing that straight out mainly through San Francisco Bay and out the Golden Gate and then out into the ocean. In other areas, it translates in, in different ways. But that's the pathway and that's where most of the stuff is coming from, which means that most of the debris that's on our beaches or in our waterways is stuff that you and I use. It's not some nameless, faceless person. It's the, it's the stuff we use every day in our everyday lives. Um, and that's the beauty of Coastal Cleanup Day is that the, the cleanup helps people make those connections. They see what they're picking up and they think about what they use in their daily lives. It can affect their shopping decisions. It can affect how much they consume. It can affect whether or not they're going to choose that snackable packages for their kids' lunch or – Oh, jeez. Those, <laughs> those are the worst. <laughs> those, are, those are really bad. Um, or buy, you know, bulk items and make a lunch. It, it really does uh, impact people. It is a wonderful education event. So what this is the – let's see. I can't remember which anniversary it was. This 28th? This was 28th, 28th exactly. year yeah. of the coastal cleanup. And can you give us some highlights of the year in terms of beaches, clean people? Yeah, we pounds. had a great year. It was it was spectacular. It's always spectacular. It's always one of my favorite days of the year because you just you stand out there. I'm out at Ocean Beach in San Francisco every year, and you stand on the seawall and you look at this mass of people out there just doing this incredible, incredible thing, um, and it it really gives you a lot of. Uh, encouragement to keep going throughout the rest of the year on what is otherwise a yeah, can be kind of a depressing topic. <laughs> um, we had a great we had one of our biggest cleanups ever. We had about 850 cleanup locations around the state. We cleaned up in 55 of California's 58 counties. So we're really really close to making this event what we've always wanted it to be, which is an opportunity for every single Californian no matter where they might live to participate in this act of coastal stewardship. And we got three straggler counties out there that we're going to get for get next year. Um, Where are those counties? They're uh, Northern California. They're uh, you know um, Sutter and oh, I always forget the names of them, but uh, the, maybe uh, one of the other ones, a couple of the other ones up there. I'll get back to you on that. All right, we'll get we'll get on them. <laughs> Um, we had about 61,000 people so far. We're still getting reports in. There's still a few events that are that are yet to happen in some areas. Um, we cleaned up close to a million pounds of trash so far. Wow, that yeah. blows me away. One day. It's one day. It's amazing what we get. I mean, there are so many tires, for example, that we pick up out of a lot of the waterways in the Sierras, and that really jacks up the trash numbers quite a bit. Um, our numbers actually were down this year from previous years, but we had this massive heat wave in Southern California on Coastal Cleanup Day. It was 105 in L.A. and 107 oh in Orange County. So I think a lot of people were sticking close to their air conditioners that day. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, 60,000 people and, and growing is just an incredible statement about how much Californians really care about our coast and want to want to do something about it. Yeah. For those tuning in, I'm talking with Eben Schwartz from the California Coastal Commission. He's the Marine Debris Program Manager. This is My name is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. So um, there's always a fun little event as part of the coastal cleanup because people take data cards, and the data is analyzed. But there's the most unusual item contest. Yes. What are the winners? We <laughs> had a um, concrete statue of a rabbit that was found up in uh, Shasta County outside of Redding. 
Uh, and the other one was, it's going to come to me in a second, but I Was just, it something locally found it here was, in Kehoe Beach? Uh, yes, it was. Thank you. That was it. It was found out at Kehoe Beach. It was an old love letter, a love poem, I should say, uh, that was really degraded. And uh, But it was this beautiful poem that someone found out at the beach, uh, and they brought it down to the volunteer barbecue at the um, – Bay Model Visitor Center and read it aloud to the crowd. It got big Aww. cheers and everything. It was really wonderful. We actually have a picture of it that's on our Facebook page. Oh, that's great. That's a fun little thing. The Coastal Cleanup. So, fantastic event every year. I know that Point Reyes National Seashore hosts a cleanup um, with Drake's Beach out here, and we have several dedicated people that come out to these beaches and really um, are sleuthing and collecting art items for mm-hmm. making art projects, but also just keeping a good eye on cleaning things up. Um, so moving on, a big topic that people are really paying attention to right now is the tsunami debris. Unfortunately, we had that tsunami last year, and it really was devastating, and so many, so many big things got pushed out to sea and have been moving mm-hmm. around the Pacific. And we talked about this a little bit a couple months ago, but I'm curious if you can deliver any of the latest information in terms of items that might be something to look out for and, and any reporting efforts that people should pay attention to. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of reports and there's been a lot of attention paid to this and I, justifiably so. I mean, there's a um, there's a real fear and awareness raising that the tsunami brought on, um, you know, you, you go back to the origins and that earthquake and tsunami in Japan uh, left almost 16,000 people dead. So the scale of human tragedy was just enormous. Uh, you know, the byproduct now is this debris. There was about 1.5 million pounds of uh, – million tons, sorry, of debris that was washed out to sea and buoyant enough to enter the ocean currents. At least some portion of that is still floating out there and is starting to make landfall, actually has been making landfall since last November along the West Coast. We've seen derelict vessels. Uh, We've seen the giant pier that washed up in Newport, Oregon that was only recently dismantled. We've seen things like soccer balls and buoys and water bottles with Japanese writing and a lot of styrofoam in Alaska. Um, it's hitting in different areas and the modeling on the ocean currents continues to evolve. We've actually learned quite a bit about ocean modeling, ocean current modeling from this event. Alaska right now is sort of the front line of impacts. They're seeing multiples of the amount of styrofoam and large styrofoam blocks that they typically see at this time of year. And, you know, as we learned more about this, that started to make a lot more sense because these items are sitting higher up in the water. They're much more affected by wind than the currents themselves. And so it made sense that these things were hitting shores much more quickly. Um, we're continuing to see stuff. We have, uh, NOAA is the lead agency on this and they're collecting reports at uh, their email address. They set up disasterdebris at NOAA.gov. They've received something on the order of 1,300 reports from the West Coast so far. They've had 11 confirmed items from the debris. So there's a lot of reports. There's, it's very hard to confirm a piece of tsunami debris. Mm-hmm. There has to be ownership markings or serial numbers or something that they can trace back specifically to that event. Um, we're, we haven't had any confirmed items that have washed up in California so far. But if you listen to my 
beach captains and county coordinators along the coast, we're getting a lot of anecdotal reports that we're seeing increases in the types of debris we would expect to be washing up from the tsunami at this point. Things like buoys uh, with Japanese writing, again, water bottles with Japanese writing, styrofoam blocks. Um, you know, these were largely fishing communities that were affected by the debris, uh, by the tsunami. So items that could come from a fishing community are exactly what we're starting to see more of. For the most part, we're not too concerned about the impact. We do see stuff from around the Pacific Rim every single year during our beach cleanups. But if we see dramatic increases in it, then we're going to start to really be able to tell that, yes, the tsunami debris is starting to wash ashore in bulk. Maybe we need to direct some more resources to those areas to, to pick that stuff up. Our big concern, of course, is anything that might be hazardous. Um, we're not worried about radioactivity from the debris. It was the, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant didn't melt down until the tsunami had washed all this out to sea already. And what we have found has been tested and hasn't been found to have elevated radioactivity levels. We are concerned about things like kerosene tanks or other chemical containers that might be washing up from the area. You know, there's a lot of household hazardous waste that gets washed out when an area of 220 square miles is devastated by a wave like that. Yeah. It's pretty intense in hearing about that. I haven't heard too many reports recently. I think <clears throat> my biggest concern is um, invasive species because once yeah. you have all this new stuff floating around, I mean, of course, that's been an issue all along with all this marine debris in the, in the ocean. But species that don't typically live on the California coast easily travel here through these big items. I know that was a really big issue with the pier in Oregon. Yeah. And that can devastate fisheries and, and, and habitats that really support a lot of vital habitat for native species. That's really true. That that pier that washed up had 98 different species on it. Inc- and five of them were on Oregon's watch list for the most invasive species. Um, it's it's a growing concern, but it's not one that is overwhelming the the overall concern about the debris itself. Because what we've found is that most of the debris that's in the ocean is going to have washed out from land. The pier was living in the nearshore estuarine environment, and those items have – and the species that are on them have a much higher likelihood of surviving in our nearshore environment than the typical species that debris would pick up in the open ocean. Generally, they wouldn't survive very long, if at all, once mm-hmm. they enter our nearshore environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, are you finding – and maybe through the coastal cleanup volunteers that – this has been an opportunity for people to become more aware of just the general ongoing day-to-day issue of marine debris. Are, are you seeing people be more aware of that now as this specific event kind of was a highlight? Well, we're working on it. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's, it's been eye-opening for a lot of folks when they, when they look at this. I mean, you hear the numbers behind it, 1.5 million tons. It's, it's an incredible amount of debris, and it's not something we're, we're taking lightly. But when you compare it to what we do to the oceans every single year, we put more than five times that amount of debris into our oceans every single year. So really, the tsunami debris is a drop in the bucket. But what it has done is it's brought this whole new audience forward. It's brought a whole bunch of people who never thought about marine debris before to the table where they're now starting to get engaged, starting to volunteer for cleanups. They want to act on what they see as a disaster. And there's a lot of those, you know, spontaneous disaster volunteers that are out there that aren't typically beach cleanup volunteers. So we want to capture those folks. We want to get that enthusiasm and keep them going and help them recognize that this is a persistent problem. This isn't a one-time event. We do this every single year. We do it throughout the year, and we need your help. 
Yeah, and you don't even need to be part of an organized cleanup to do it. You can do it on your own. Exactly. Yeah, no, we want everybody out there cleaning up all the time. Excellent. So um, I recently read that about 10% of the plastic debris in the ocean is made up of pre-production plastic pellets, or also known as nurdles. Mm -hmm. Um, That was through the Algolita Marine Research Foundation. What are efforts going on to reduce this? this? These are the pellets that make our kayaks and shampoo bottles and toothbrushes and anything that goes into massive production. And it seems like we have some containment issues. And uh, I know that we find them a lot on our beaches here, and they're very toxic. We sure do. We find them, uh, we find them all the time. And actually, uh, the studies that have been done on those issues find that um, you know, on coastal cleanup day, cigarette butts are always our number one item. But if you really start sifting the sand and doing the doing the research that you need to do, we find that those pre-production plastic pellets are by far the most numerous item of de- of beach debris, uh, especially in Southern California, where there are so many plastic producers. There's something like seven thousand plastics producers down there, um, and they outnumber cigarette butts by a factor of a hundred. We're looking at a hundred thousand wow. or a hundred million for every million cigarette butts that we're picking up. So they are a huge item and actually one of the uh, success stories that we've had as we've been working on this over the past five or ten years, the Ocean Protection Council here in California got involved in marine debris back in 2007 and passed a resolution on marine debris that was really wonderful. It was very far-reaching and it was a great statement about all the different impacts we need to look at and all the different sources that we need to address. It was shying away from cleanup, which is an after-the-fact right. effort Not and dealing with the sources. One of those sources is stormwater. And at the top of that stormwater chain are these plastics producers that were losing a lot of pellets. So out of that resolution spawned a piece of legislation, the one piece of legislation that is actually passed that was generated by that resolution. Um, and it regulated those facilities for loss of of, uh, of the pellets. It also mandated increased monitoring um, by stormwater agencies and encouraged the use of best management practices, which have been shown to be really effective at containing these things. Charlie Moore had a great quote where he said, if he could do one thing to solve the marine debris problem in Southern California, it would be to give every plastics producer in the in the Southern California basin a shop vac. Because that's really what it takes is just cleaning up after themselves so that they don't lose these things to the stormwater system uh, in such numbers. Mm. You know, they're very, very small. They lose them by the millions and don't even notice uh, because they cost almost nothing. So right. it's it's almost uh, more efficient for them not to clean them up. So since that act passed or the legislation passed, um, I think you were mentioning there wasn't hasn't been a ton of money to actually enforce that. But has mm-hmm. there been any changes seen by the producers and, and their behaviors? Um, we haven't really studied the behaviors very much. But what we have seen is an overall reduction in the amount of stormwater trash that's coming out of the Southern California Basin, especially partly because of that act, but also largely because of new stormwater regulations that have been put in place in that area. A lot of people have probably heard of the trash TMDL, the total maximum daily load limit that was set in that area back in 2001. Uh, It was the first of its kind. The TMDL statute is part of the Clean Water Act that limits the amount of um, items that can – usually chemicals that can come out of a water body. When it was set for trash in L.A., um, it became – this great new movement to stop trash from coming out. And along with all that trash, pellets were being captured. So we're seeing a lot less 
uh, overall in Southern California than we did before that passed. That's really good news. Now, you're talking a lot about Southern California. Is Southern California the largest producer of marine debris? or There seems to be a lot of effort on monitoring in Southern California, but what about Northern California, Bay Area? Oh, we definitely, we have our fair share and we contribute more than our fair share, I would say. But because Southern California is so highly urbanized and there are so many people in that area, far more than there are in Northern California, they're naturally going to generate a lot more trash. And because of that, a lot of the management practices that we want to use to affect this problem are piloted there and then move to the rest of the state once, we sh- once we've seen they're effective. Um, but right now, those stormwater regulations have been replicated in San Francisco Bay and will be taking effect over the coming years. And we're going to hopefully see the same success story here. That's fantastic. So there's been a lot of progress on this issue in, in California, and hopefully we'll see more declines over time. I'd like to take a break real quick. And maybe when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about some of the legislation going on in the state to help address this issue of plastics in the ocean. For those just tuning in, I am Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And my guest today is Eben Schwartz from the California Coastal Commission. All right, you're listening to Ocean Currents on KWMR 90.5, Point Ray Station 89.9, Bolinas. And I have Eben Schwartz here in the studio. We're talking about marine debris and California's efforts to help curb it and reduce it. So, Eben, what are some key efforts that are happening in California that you can share with our listeners that are helping, are working to tackle this issue in California? It's such a huge, huge issue. It's, it is a huge issue. And one of the toughest parts about it is that, um, you know, there's no silver bullet to this. There are so many different sources of marine debris. There's so many different ways it gets out to the ocean that there is no single way to, to get at it. And because of that, there's no single agency in the state that's responsible for marine debris. Nobody has a mandate to deal with marine debris. People have small pieces of the pie. But the nice thing is that because of all the attention that's been brought to this issue uh, and because of efforts on from the Ocean Protection Council, among others, that have a great way of convening groups on this issue, um, everybody is starting to take a piece of that pie and to do something about it. The biggest is the one that I was talking about just before the break. It's the stormwater regulations that are taking impact in Southern California, now the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, And there's, in fact, a statewide trash policy for stormwater that is being developed at the State Water Resources Board and um, is under review and hopefully going to be put into place within the next couple of years that will have largely the same impact that we're seeing in these regions where they will limit dramatically the amount of trash that's allowed to enter water bodies through the stormwater system. In San Francisco Bay region, the the level that's acceptable is zero. In the LA region, the level that's acceptable is zero. So when you get that kind of an incentive for municipalities that have to follow those permits, all of a sudden you start to see things like trash capture devices and stormwater basin inserts, much more frequent street cleaning bigger education campaign. San Francisco Bay region is starting a new education campaign as well. And all those resources are brought to bear to tackle the problem and to stop this trash from getting out. There's also a whole lot of different efforts. So that that's one way. And, you know, I always try to envision it as a, as a pipe of the ways trash gets out to our ocean. It's a long pipe. It starts at a specific point source, ends up at the ocean. And if you clean it up at the end of that pipe, it's incredibly expensive. 
everything and harder. Everything you do further up the pipe gets a lot more cheaper, a lot more effective, and you get better results. So mm, storm stormwater regulations happen a little further up the pipe, but they don't hit the source. To address the source, what a lot of cities are doing now are passing bans on items that are likely to become marine debris so that they don't have to deal with it in their trash capture devices further down the pipe. That's why we're seeing so many plastic bag bans that are taking place in cities up and down the coast. Uh, We have smoke-free beaches that are taking place largely in Southern California but also up here. Um, There's polystyrene bans that are taking place and all of those measures are reducing the amount of work that municipalities have to do on the cleanup end of things. We do have new education campaigns. We're always focused on different elements of it and trying to encourage people to take action on this every single day of their lives. Um, but really, the, you know, the legislation that we're seeing and even at the state, that's going to have the biggest bang for the buck. Speaking of that, with the election coming up in November, is there are there any key initiatives that people should look for on the ballot this November regarding marine debris? Not on the ballot uh, for marine debris. There were several pieces of legislation moving through uh, this year. None of them got through. There was going to be a statewide ban on plastic bags and a fee on paper bags. Uh, that didn't make it through. One of the really interesting movements that we're, that we're doing a lot more of in California and could have a really big impact on this issue is something called extended producer responsibility. It's a way to force producers of items to uh, essentially into a product stewardship role where they're responsible for the entire life cycle of their product rather than just sticking it at a store to be sold and being done with it. So we now have – it's called EPR. We have EPR on carpets. We have EPR on batteries. We have EPR on appliances. There's different forms of it in all these different pieces of legislation, but what it makes, what it forces is responsibility on the producers, at least equal responsibility on the producers for the end of life of their products. The big goal from my perspective would be EPR on packaging because that's the vast majority of what we see on our beaches and in our storm drains. If we could get EPR on packaging, we'd go a long way towards bringing everybody who should be at the table to the table, including producers, to take responsibility for the stuff that we all use. That would be awesome. That's the one thing when I do talk to groups of students or adults that are interested in this issue is just the personal behavior or response. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm tried so hard to reduce plastic in our lives, and it's just so difficult. But there are things we can do and trying to reduce and Using our water bottles. Exactly. Evan and I have here. Cheers. <laughs> um, and I've seen a lot more people be, being using using those as well. And I'm one of those moms at daycare that has everything in a reusable container. And I think it's my little message to them as well. <laughs> yeah, and it and it works. I mean, I, look at look at our state. We have 37 million people in our state. That's a lot of people. And if every single one of those people brought a reusable bag to the grocery store just one time during the year, that's 37 million single-use disposable plastic bags that we've taken out of the system. And those become – they're used for seconds at times. Yeah. And they are very likely to become marine debris. So there are actions like that, reusable water bottles, reusable bags, waste-free lunches that are simple to do once you look at it and do make a marked difference. That's great. And it's such an important behavior to to continue to educate about and 
getting kids on it as a lifelong habit right now. I mean, I, I find like I feel like we're hearing these things over and over and over again as adults, but they really are key important actions that we can take. So I always encourage people, whatever you do, just using less and reusing materials is the way to go. Evan, are there any websites that you recommend for people to track what's going on in terms of plastic um, and marine debris in the ocean? Sure. I mean, they can always go to our website, which is uh, coastal.ca.gov. That's the Coastal Commission's website, and it's very informative about uh, not just items like this. If you go to the public education page, you'll get a lot of information about marine debris and what we're doing about it and all of our different education programs, uh, including our Whale Tail Grants program, which helps support uh, efforts around the state for coastal and uh, watershed education. Um, but you'll also get more information about the Coastal Commission itself, what's going on at the meetings, what issues we're dealing with, what the hot topic is these days. Uh, and there's always a hot topic no matter where you are in the state. It's one of the amazing things about this is, is Californians love their coast and it it uh, it shows itself in a lot of different ways. And uh, part of that right now is Coast Weeks, right? Right after right. the Coastal Commission for our coastal cleanup for a few weeks, they have a special – way for people to get involved in coastal events, and that's yes. for a few more, another week or so, right? Uh, about another week. We have a, it, Coast Weeks is the three weeks that take place, the three weeks after Coastal Cleanup Day where we maintain an online calendar of all the different ocean and coastal-related events that are taking place around the state, um, and uh, they can find that calendar online, and you've got another week of events to, uh, to check out. Fantastic. Yeah. And what the, is that, there's there a link from the uh, coastal.ca.gov website for that? Yes. And folks can also just go to coastalcleanupday.org if they want to uh, get there even quicker. Uh, and then one of the other great websites that's out there is there's a group called the Clean Seas Coalition, which is a, a coalition of environmental organizations working on marine debris issues. Uh, they have a great bill tracker that keeps uh, an eye on all of the statewide initiatives that are moving through the legislature that have anything to do with marine debris, what state they are, uh, where you know what committee they're in, and what actions people can take if they want to support it. Uh, and a few other groups that also focus on recycling or reuse. The California Product Stewardship Council is a great one. Californians Against Waste is another one. A so lot many of groups. A lot of different resources that folks can look into. Awesome. There's also, I just thought, just because we're talking about websites, fivegyres.org. They have a fantastic blog that really talks about some of the issues involved with this in terms of the production and cleanup and monitoring and really enjoyed reading their blog. They have a great blog and they actually are, they also do uh, ocean sampling uh, in uh, off their uh, catamaran to check out what's actually out there in the ocean. In fact, my colleague Shannon Waters just came off one of their research trips from Japan to Hawaii where they were actually out there looking for tsunami debris. Mm. But they found an incredible amount of trash. I don't remember the exact number she told me, but they keep a lookout uh, throughout the course of their month-long trip. And if I got this number right, I'm, I'm sorry if I don't, but it's at least close to this that when they figured it out at the end of the trip, after 30 days of monitoring all the time, they saw a piece of trash in the ocean every two and a half minutes for wow. the entire length of their voyage. That's pretty hard to to enjoy the wilderness if <laughs> there's no wilderness. Absolutely. Well, Eben, thanks so much for coming in today to Ocean Currents and being a part of this community by sharing your information about the marine debris issue here in California and globally. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks again for coming in. Any last words? Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Keep up the great work and, and spreading the word about this. Thank you.
Will do. Folks, we're going to take a quick break here listen to, listening to some ocean. I'll be back in just a minute. So I wanted to just give you some highlights from the conference that I was just at and an issue we really got to keep our eyes on with ocean acidification. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I was at the Ocean in a High CO2 World Conference in Monterey last week. It was a big week for the ocean in Monterey. The Blue Ocean Film Festival was going on, which is an international ocean film event for um, industry filmmakers as well as the public and a lot of passionate people there. Sylvia Earle was there, James Cameron and all these incredible people that really are the the movers and shakers for this ocean conservation movement. But I didn't get to see any films. I was at a science conference and trying to get my head around the ocean acidification and the science that's happening around that. This is the third symposium, and it's an international conference, and it was incredible the amount of presentations that were going on. So just to recap, we talked about it before on past shows, but ocean acidification is a process that's actually changing the pH of the ocean. It's lowering it, and it's caused by excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from carbon emissions. The ocean absorbs this carbon dioxide, and it reacts with molecules in the ocean. Is actually changing the pH of the ocean. It's hugely important. If you think about your body and all the balances that you have to stay healthy with electrolytes and hydration, your pH, all of that is so important. And if it becomes off by a little bit, you really feel the effects of it. And the same thing's happening in the ocean as well. What really got me is the the fact that it's the rate of change that is really the huge, huge concern here. Um, 55 million years ago, there was a similar event in our geologic record that we know of where there was a shift in pH and a temperature increase and there was mass extinction. And the scary part is what's happening now is happening 10 times faster than when it did 55 million years ago. So there's huge, huge cause for concern amongst the scientific community about what this means for the food web. So I heard lots of talks about studies going on focusing a lot on the impact to larval and juvenile phases of key organisms like phytoplankton and krill and oysters, crabs, and fish. A lot of these species are being studied in the lab and in a controlled situation and being exposed to very high CO2. And they're really hoping to scale up a lot of these studies into more of an ecosystem model to really understand the effects in an ecosystem with predation and changing everything and temperatures. It's very different in a lab than it is in the real world. So very, very interesting stuff. We need to keep our eyes on this issue and continuing to work for lowering emissions globally. Um, After the science workshop, uh, the Sanctuary Education Team, which I'm a part of, we worked on a two-day intensive workshop with communicators from all around California, primarily a couple other key institutions as well. And we really are working hard to get our arms around how to communicate about this issue. 
I was really pleased. Uh, local Terry Sawyer from Hog Island Oyster Company, he came and participated and gave a perspective as a stakeholder. Um, and several other folks from our area where they are participating as well. So you're definitely going to hear more about this in the future from us. We are just out of time right now. Just want to thank you for tuning in today to KWMR Ocean Currents. And next month, we'll be talking with a scientist, Bill Coughlin from the Romberg Tiburon Center, about phytoplankton. He is a fascinating scientist, and I learned a lot about phytoplankton through, through him earlier this summer, and I'm really excited to bring him on. So come back then for... Ocean Currents, the first Monday of every month. And thanks for staying tuned to KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.